0: If Christians truly understood what God is doing in their waiting, they'd be a force against the enemy. Because I think a lot of Christians sell themselves short and they actually stop short because they're not fully aware of what God is doing in the waiting period. And so they stop waiting, they give up, they get disappointed, they walk away too soon. And if you don't understand what God is doing and the purpose behind your waiting process, Again, you'll be one of those believers that ends up uh, falling short of the fullness that God has for you in this life, not falling short of you know, salvation or anything, but God has an ideal plan for your life. It includes the fullest extent of blessing and satisfaction and contentment, and that also includes waiting. And so there is a purpose behind the waiting, and there are a few things that have been really sticking out to me as I've been preparing for this. Number one, we don't need to know how long we're going to wait in order to be faithful. In other words, our faithfulness to God in the waiting period doesn't depend on how long I'll be waiting. Does that make sense? Another thing that we need to understand is that our waiting or our faithfulness to God doesn't even depend on what He's doing behind the scenes or through our waiting. I don't need to know what He's doing All I need to know mainly is who he is and the general promises about God working all things together for my good and God moving us in the direction of uh, new creation and everything that he's promised in his son. And so what we have to kind of answer today is what is God doing through the test of waiting? Because waiting, any period of waiting throughout your life, which if we're honest, James 1.12 tells us and other scriptures tell us that our whole life is one big waiting period. But waiting involves a test. Like that's actually a test of your faith. And there are five specific things you and I need to understand about the waiting test. Whether there are periods of waiting, seasons of waiting, or whether we're just talking about the general life of waiting on the Lord. You, in, in order to have the power to wait faithfully and keep serving God, even through the trials and tribulations, it requires us to understand what God has said about the waiting and what he's um, specifically said about um, what our faithfulness is going to produce. But that's always gonna be specific for each person. But there are general principles and wisdom God always is accomplishing. For instance, James chapter 1, verse 12. And what we're gonna to do today is we're gonna to go to John chapter 11. John 11, we're gonna read about Lazarus. Um, you guys know the end of the story. I'm not gonna spoil it. Lazarus gets resurrected, not resurrected, I guess resurrected technically. But he gets raised from the dead. Resurrection is where you come back to life, never to die again. So Lazarus is raised from the dead, which is a little different. James chapter 1, verse 12. I'm going to pull it up for you. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The test here, the trial, the test of the faith, is life itself, and at the end of life, we see the crown of life waiting for those who faithfully serve and and, and walk with Jesus. Not to say that eternal life is based on works. That's not what I'm saying at all, but I am saying that faith results in eternal life, and that we will receive that in a full experience, right? Never to die again. The crown of life is waiting for those who believe in the Son after they die, and so to enter into life, we have to go into a kind of physical death, to be resurrected to a new eternal life um, that will never be taken away from us. So, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Uh, I I thought of eight specific stories. I'm not going to go through all of them today. We're just going to look at Mary and Martha and Lazarus today. And so I encourage you to take out your notepad. You're going to need these notes later in your life. These things are going to come up throughout your life and you're going to want to pull up these notes again, okay? So if you don't need them now, you'll need them eventually. It'd be smart to take notes in preparation for what you know is going to come your way, which is the test and the waiting period that actually reveals the quality of our faith along the course of our life. Um, There's a bunch of faithful saints in scripture who waited longer than they expected. And the last episode, we talked about how Um, Hebrews chapter 11 lists out all these men and women who didn't even get what they were expecting in this life. They would get it later, or it would happen once they were gone. Um, There's a bunch of believers, brothers and sisters in the Bible who waited a lot longer than they expected. Um, There's a prophetess named Anna and a prophet named Simeon in Luke chapter two. They waited their whole lives to see God's anointed one. They waited their whole lives to see salvation and redemption wrapped up in the Messiah, baby Jesus. Uh, we have someone named Jairus in the Gospels who has a sick young girl. And he comes to Jesus um, asking him to come and heal his daughter. Um, he ends up waiting only to see um, his daughter end up dying when they get there. She's, she's dead. She's dead. And uh, Jesus raises her to life, but Jairus is waiting The woman who has the um, issue of blood for 12 years in the gospels, um, she waits 12 years for the true physician to heal her. Or there's a paralyzed man who waits 38 years in John chapter five to be healed of his uh, paralysis. In Acts chapter three, there's a paralyzed man who waits 40 years um, to be healed. In John chapter nine, there's a man that's born blind um, who waited many years for the glory of God to be seen in, in his healing. Uh, I think of David, King David, when he's anointed to be king, he waits a number of years before he's actually crowned the king, and he, where he's actually, uh, uh, yeah, crowned the king. And so he's anointed, but he doesn't actually ascend the throne until later on in his life. And what we're going to look at today is Mary and Martha. There's a lot of parallel between Mary and Martha and my own life and our own lives. You're going to see, um, you're going to go, wow, sounds like me. It <laughs> sounds a lot like me. So... Listen, pay attention, Mary and Martha in John chapter 11 are looking at their dying brother Lazarus, he's sick, and they send word to Jesus, Okay, and in this story you're going to see five specific things that are necessary, required for us to understand if we're going to wait faithfully on the Lord. In other words, um, when you ask the question, what is God doing? through my waiting period? What is God doing or accomplishing through the test of waiting? There are at least five general things that we can know about the waiting test every time, okay? So we're gonna see those things in John chapter 11. Go there with me. And it says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany is the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who actually anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is dying. Mary and Martha are his sisters, and they're worried. So the sisters send to Jesus. They send messengers saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It's interesting that Mary and Martha refer to Lazarus as the one that Jesus loves. I don't think they're guilt tripping him or pressuring him to come and heal Lazarus, but it is interesting. Not Lazarus, not our brother, but specifically the one that you love, which makes it sound like the fact that you love him, um, or if you love him, then what results is that you're gonna heal him on our time frame. So they're not doubting the fact that Jesus loves Lazarus, but in their mind, what you're gonna see is that because they know Jesus loves Lazarus, they think that means Jesus is gonna come on their time frame and do what they want in the way that they want, okay? But we need to understand that just because God loves us, right, that doesn't mean since he loves us, he'll always do what we want, when we want, how we want. In fact, quite the opposite is often gonna happen. God actually loves us, which is why sometimes he won't do the things we want or when we want, or how we want, or through the people we want. So you're gonna see in verse four and five, the first thing, that the waiting test has a purpose, okay? So when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Is that true? Kind of, he's not lying. Just the way he's communicating it to the disciples, it sounds like Lazarus won't die. This illness won't lead to death. Now that's true. Because Lazarus will be you know, brought back from the dead, but he will go through a temporary death. He will temporarily die physically, only to be brought back from the dead. So yes, the illness doesn't lead to death as its end, right? Because Jesus overturns that death. Um, but look at this. We know that in every waiting period, whatever you're waiting for, however long you've been waiting for it, And where you're at in the waiting process, we know this for sure. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus, as we're gonna see, is gonna wait two extra days longer. He's not gonna come to them when they want him to. He's gonna wait. He's gonna allow their faith to be stretched. He's gonna allow them to be put under the pressure He's going to let them sit there in that wondering and confusion and uncertainty. And why he waits is specifically because he's going to do something better than they envisioned. And it's for the glory of God that he waits and lets Lazarus die. Because God is glorified and the Son will be glorified through not just the waiting, not just the testing, but what God does at the end of it. So... The same kind of idea is seen in John chapter 9. We have a blind man sitting. Jesus passes by with the disciples. He sees a blind man from birth. My guy has been blind since he was born. He's never seen the world. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, ask him, Rabbi, teacher, who who sinned, this man or his parents? You know, that he was born blind they assume the blindness is a consequence. They assume the blindness is a punishment. If it's not for his sin, it's gotta be for his parents' sin. Jesus answers, oh, neither, pretty much. It wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, this man's blindness is purposed for the glory of God being seen. This man's blindness is purposed for God to actually make a spectacle of himself through healing this blindness. Same idea in John chapter 11. Same idea. And when everyone's waiting, when you're waiting on God, do something. It's not as fast as you want. And you're like, when are you gonna do this? Are you gonna do this? Uncertainty's kicking in. The pressure's kicking in. You're starting to get a little angsty and anxious. Everyone wants to figure out if the waiting process is a delay, because we're always wondering, am I waiting here because of my own sin? Am I sitting in this problem because of my own sin? Or am I sitting here as a result of my faithfulness and obedience? And frankly, sometimes it is a result of sin. It is a consequence and a delay because of our own rebellion. We might slow the process down, not to overturn God's sovereign plan altogether, but to slow the process of what He ideally wants to accomplish in my life. I play a role in participating in that. So sometimes, yeah, it actually can be a a delay. You're sitting in a period of waiting as a delay because of your own disobedience and constant rebellion and unrepentant sin or whatever it may be, a lesson you haven't learned for sure, but not always. And what you and I need to understand is frankly, and I mean this like with all honesty, it doesn't matter. Whether or not I'm sitting here waiting because of my own faithfulness or because of my own disobedience, that doesn't change the response of my heart. Either way, I'm gonna respond the same. Faithful waiting, faithful trusting, faithful service, continuing to believe, looking to Jesus. So when you and I are trying to figure out, am I here because of a consequence or am I here because I'm, I'm being faithful? Frankly, again, it doesn't change what you're gonna do. Even if you know why, it's not gonna change your response. It doesn't really matter. So no matter what, choose to wait faithfully on God in any and every season of waiting. Choose to wait. Mary and Martha aren't gonna choose to wait. This is not their ideal plan. This is not what they wanted. This is not what they envisioned. In fact, they send the messengers going, he whom you love is ill, so Jesus is gonna come heal him because we know he loves him. Quite the opposite. Jesus is gonna wait and actually disappoint them and not meet their expectations precisely because he loves them. So, no matter what waiting process you're in, no matter what you're anticipating, no matter what you're believing God to do in faith, that he said in his word or you see the promise and it's been confirmed over and over, whatever you're waiting for, no matter what, in every waiting season, God is glorified through the waiting, not just at the end of it. That's what we need to understand, is it's not like once I'm done waiting, God will be glorified. Well, yes, that stretching and that pressure And the end of you, you staying there the whole time does glorify him, but it's through the waiting, God is actually doing something. And he's being glorified through what he's cooking up. But he's also glorified through your obedience to sit and wait and believe and keep doing what he's called you to. As a dad, I sometimes make my kids wait on purpose. Like there's a purpose for me causing them to wait. Even though they could have it now, and they could reach out for it now, and there's nothing stopping them, Um, sometimes I do make my kids wait for a purpose. It's for their good. Maybe because they can't handle it quite yet. Maybe because it wouldn't be enjoyable in this context and environment. Maybe because there's something they have to learn to be able to really understand and appreciate what they're about to have. They don't need to know my specific purpose. They don't. They just need to know me enough to trust me. So when we talk about waiting, you and I, as human beings, we want to break everything down and overanalyze and go, what is God specifically doing? Frankly, you and I don't need to know the specifics of what God is cooking up behind the scenes while I'm waiting and believing. You don't have to know, that's not going to change whether or not you're going to be faithful. If your faithfulness depends on knowing all that God is doing behind the scenes, it's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is neither blind either. I have enough evidence of his character in my life. I have enough evidence of his character in in the word of God. So I don't need to know the specifics of what he's doing in order to be faithful. I am going to choose to be faithful because of who he is, not because of what I know he's doing. I don't need to know. Otherwise, that's conditional obedience. Otherwise, what you're saying is, I will only wait when I know this much, or when I have this much understanding of what he's doing behind the scenes, then I'll choose to faithfully wait on him. You don't need to know what he's doing. You just need to know who he is. Because then, whatever he's doing, it's gonna be consistent with his character. Okay? So the waiting test always has a purpose. Always. And no matter what the general idea and the general wisdom is that God is always going to glorify himself not to your exclusion not to the neglect of you actually it's to your benefit that God glorifies himself to you and through you and through your waiting and through the situation and in you sitting in uncertainty not getting what you want and wondering if it's even going to come the the waiting on God on him alone not on his hand not on what he'll do waiting on God is what glorifies him So I don't need to know the specifics and every dimension of what it is he's doing in my life and how that will affect every person in human history. It doesn't change my response. The second thing you're going to see is in verse 6. Okay? So they send the messengers. they, They come to Jesus. And Jesus says this sickness won't end in death. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Were they right? Jesus, the one who you love, he's sick. Yeah, he does love him. He does love them very much. In fact, he loves them so much, he's going to make them wait. Do you you see it? And I really want this to sink in because some of you, again, you equate God's love with not making you wait. You say, if God loves, then he'll work on my time frame. If God loves, he'll do what I want. If God loves me, he'll do it when I want, how I want. Not true. God loves us so much, sometimes he won't give you what you want, or when you want it, or how you want it. That's the love of God. So it's not God loves me if he does it how I want, when I want, when I, or through the method that I, I want, it's God loves me, regardless of whether or not he meets my expectations. It says he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus so much that watch. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How is that love? <laughs> you and I go, yeah, that's, that doesn't sound like love. That's because we have a twisted, wrong, corrupted idea of what love is. Love is always for the ultimate benefit of another. It is for the benefit of Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and their entire community that they see Lazarus be raised from the dead. It's for their ultimate benefit. If Jesus did go and heal Lazarus when they wanted and how they wanted, and he met their expectations, it would have been less of a miracle. It would have revealed less of his character and glory or another dimension of his glory that, frankly, Jesus knows they already understand. So now he's gonna reveal a different angle of his power and character in actually raising Lazarus from the dead. So he waits, he stays. And this is what you and I need to understand in the waiting, if you haven't caught it already. God loves us so much that he'll make us wait. You don't need to doubt the love of God. You shouldn't wonder, is he who he says he is? It's precisely the fact that he cares for you and loves you, and desires your benefit, that he will make you wait, and sometimes he will disappoint you. Because frankly, we have the wrong expectations, and we don't know what to wait for. So we decide this is worth waiting for when God never actually said that. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he loves you. He loves you so much that the waiting period is actually evidence of his concern for you. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said, Rabbi, uh, teacher, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. You're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. What's about to happen at the end of this story is the people of mary martha's city and community and their family and their friends and lazarus himself and the disciples they are all about to see the light of the world in a different way with the resurrection power of jesus okay if anyone walks in the light he stumbles if anyone walks in the night he stumbles because the light is not in him this is all about revealing the light of who he is but Sometimes we won't really see the light of Jesus unless we're in the appropriate amount of what you might call physical darkness, the night, like sitting and waiting, the kind of doom and gloom, <laughs> the kind of, is this, this is not where I want to be, God. And it's precisely in that kind of darkness and trouble and turmoil and, and hardship that you see the light of Jesus clearer that you see actually God uses that darkness in your life as a platform to reveal just how good he is. And you see him in a way that you never saw him before. And you know him in a way that you never knew him before. And that wouldn't have happened unless you sat in that hardship, that waiting, that turmoil, and that trouble long enough for him to come through and reveal himself in a way that was miraculous. And so Jesus is gonna reveal the light of who he is in a different way. It requires the backdrop of, of, of pain and loss and hardship and death. After saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm gonna go wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. <laughs> They're lost. They have no idea what he's doing. Jesus had spoken of his death but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Like, if he's asleep, why do we need to travel so far to go and wake him up? That makes no sense. Exactly. It doesn't need to make sense to them. They just need to follow. Then Jesus told them plainly, guys, Lazarus died. Ah, now how did he know that? And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there that's rough, (laughs) Jesus, you you just said Lazarus died and you're glad you weren't there, you know, to heal him and spare him from death and you're saying it's for our sake, For, for our sake. Watch why, it's so that you may believe. Let's go get him. In other words, he's going, if Lazarus died or did not die, and I went and healed him, it wouldn't be to your benefit. You wouldn't believe in the way you're about to. I'm about to stretch your faith and reveal the new dimension of who I am that's gonna strengthen and ground you more than you've ever been. And again, it requires the backdrop of loss and death and pain. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go, we'll die with him. Because they're believing, you know, Jesus just left this region and he was kind of, you know, uh, forced out. People did not want him there. Okay? So they think they're going back into persecution. They think they're about to actually die because of standing with Jesus. Now, verse 17. Here's what I want you to understand. The second thing about the waiting period, the purpose of the waiting, is understand... The waiting test has a time frame. Every season, every period, every test of waiting has a specific time frame attached to it. In other words, even if we're talking about life as one big waiting period and trusting in God, every waiting period has an end and it won't last forever. So Mary and Martha have been waiting a number of days. Now, I don't know geographically, how far uh, Bethany is from where Jesus was and how long it would take. I should have mathematically calculated that. That would have been helpful. But either way, by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, okay? Mary and Martha have been waiting a number of days. Every waiting period has an intended time frame attached to it. Their waiting is about to come to an end. They've been waiting for Jesus to what? heal their brother. Is he gonna do that? Not the way they thought. He's not gonna heal Lazarus of sickness, he's gonna actually overturn death and raise him from the dead. And one of the things that we forget while we're waiting is that God knows how long you need to wait. He knows that far better than you do. You might think, my character is developed, I've learned my lesson, I see the right things. Can we move on? If you're still waiting, there's something he's doing that you don't understand. Needs to happen in your life. What God is developing over time and doing in the background is going to produce the maximum amount of fruit and glory for his name through your waiting. For example, think about how God didn't rescue Israel okay, out of Egypt for 400 years. Remember that? They're sitting in, 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 being enslaved to the Egyptian, uh, to Pharaoh for 400 years. Now, God told Abraham years before, Abraham, you're going to have a nation. They're going to come from you. You're going to be, you know, the blessed father. And they're going to end up in, in slavery. I don't remember if he says Egypt specifically, but he says for 400 years. Okay. And he says, um, it's going to be 400 years because of the fact that the Amorites' sin has not yet reached completion. It hasn't reached to the full. That's a big bummer. But there's an intended time frame attached to Israel's period of slavery in Egypt because of not only, but one of the things is that what God is doing behind the scenes with the Amorites and the people in the land. Um, Acts chapter one, verse six and seven, the disciples really wanna know, Jesus has resurrected and they're trying to figure out, he hasn't really done what we've expected him to do. So they come together and they say, Lord, at this time, are you gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. And he said to them, it's not for you to know. And they're like, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But then he tells them what they need to know, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they don't need to know how long it's going to take for Jesus to do what they think he's going to do, if it's even going to happen the way they think at all. They don't need to know. I don't need to know, you don't need to know how long we have to wait in order to be faithful. The, the, the period of time we have to wait is irrelevant to my faithfulness. Because again, if I'm allowing, if I'm only choosing to wait based on how long I know I have to wait, then it's conditional obedience. You're only obeying God and waiting faithfully on him because of something else that you know, because you know it's gonna take this long and it's worth waiting out, even if you don't know. Even if you do know, it shouldn't affect what you do, which is to be faithful. So I'll say it like this. What God allows us to know is all we need to know to faithfully wait. There are some things we don't have to know. There are some things we, have, uh, we don't have to know right now. And God will eventually reveal it. There are other things. Uh, we think about what God chooses to withhold from us. Even if we knew those things, how long we have to wait, what it's going to look like, what God's doing specifically, even if we knew those things, potentially it would cause more issues for you if you did know. And that's why God withholds that information because he knows what you can handle and he knows what will disrupt your waiting process. So you, you need to trust that what God has revealed to you in this season of waiting, frankly, as you've sought him and as you've asked, as you've prayed, as you've fasted, as you've opened his word and remained faithful. If, if you only know a certain amount of stuff regarding your waiting process, that's all you need to know in order to be faithful. If you think, I need to know more about what I'm going through in order to re- obey God, that's conditional obedience. James chapter 1 verse 2 through 5. James, brother of Jesus, says, count it all joy, my brothers. Consider it joy. Evaluate it as a joy to you when you meet trials of various kinds. When you encounter trials of various kinds, you didn't plan for it. It wasn't on your agenda. It wasn't on your schedule as you're planning out the month. A few trials here. Thursday is going to be wrought with trials. I'm going to be hit hard on Friday. You're, in, you're meeting trials that you don't even know are coming your way. You just encounter them like a wild animal. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. There is a degree of patience and waiting and endurance required in every trial. And it's not always gonna be the same. Some of you look at past trials, past waiting periods, and you go, that's how long I'm gonna have to wait this time. Not necessarily. You might have to wait longer. You might not have to wait as long. But to assume that previous and past waiting periods are the standard for all the times I'll have to wait in the future is a wrong assumption. So James says, when you encounter a trial, a test of your faith, Involving a waiting period, that's what it includes. The waiting is a testing and a revealing, right? And exposing the quality of faith. When you encounter trials, suffering, hardship, pain, you can count it as a joy. Do you know why? Because of what you know. What I do know is this, that through this trial, there's a steadfastness and a patience and an effect that it's having on my faith. God is doing something in me. God is working something out. God is exposing stuff. God is addressing deep issues. Possibly God is answering previous prayers I've brought before him through this trial. And he's doing what I've been asking him to do, and it's packaged as a trial. But it's really a gift at the end of it, or even within it. So it's not that I'm rejoicing about the trial, and going, yes, I love pain, please more. It's that I'm rejoicing about what the trial is doing or what God is doing through that in my life, more specifically. I know the testing of my faith produces steadfastness. But notice the full effect, let that steadfastness, let that patience, let that endurance, let that waiting have its full effect. In other words, there is, again, a time frame, an ideal time frame attached to every period of waiting. And what God is doing is something that you and I aren't fully aware of. We don't fully understand and we don't need to know, but we do know that we need to wait till the end. That doesn't mean sit back and be lazy and do nothing, but some of us only wait on God when we know how long it's gonna last. I've seen that in my kids. I'll tell my kids, hey, you only have to wait. We'll be home in five minutes. Suddenly, they're quiet. Because they know how long they have to wait. They've been complaining. How long, Dad? Are we there yet? Where are we? I'm hungry. You said five minutes already. I never said that, buddy. Well, you said ten, and it's probably been five. Look, buddy. We'll be home in exactly five minutes. Now, they know Five minutes. Now they're not, they not—they might not be able to like actually calculate that correctly. Their awareness of time is way off, right? Because two seconds later they go, "Has it been five minutes?" But the point is, now that they have a time frame in mind that I that I tell them they'll have to wait through, um, my kids consciously choose whether they'll be patient or not. And usually, they will choose to be patient when they know how long they have to wait, and they'll okay. Now that I know how long I have to wait, God, or for us, you know, when we talk to God and we go, Lord, now that we know how long we have to wait, I'm willing to do it. And again, if you're only willing to wait and be faithful to him based on the fact that you know how long it's going to last, I'm going to call it conditional obedience because that's what it is. That's exactly what it is there's a condition you're waiting for in order to really obey God. And my kids do the same thing. Okay, dad, we'll wait. We'll wait. But when I don't tell them, and frankly, we're going somewhere new, we've never been there. Um, You know, been there for like, uh, or we've been driving for like 10 minutes. It's like, I don't know. We don't even know how long we have to drive And my kids go, how long? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know. And they're like, "Ah!" and they just lose their mind. That's us, isn't it? God doesn't tell us how long we have to wait and we lose our ever loving mind. And then we suddenly aren't willing to wait. Well, if you're not going to tell me, I'm not going to sit here and do what you've told me to. Really? Because you don't know how long you have to keep doing it. So you weren't really obeying God because you loved him. You were only going to obey him because you knew how long you'd have to. That's weird. But there is a full effect God intends for a waiting period to have or a test to have on your faith. There was a full effect. One of the very first times in my life that God revealed spiritual wisdom through practical scenarios, because that's often how the Lord speaks to me. It's just... I I, I read what I I see in Proverbs is that wisdom is crying out in the streets. And so in any scenario, in any context, I can glean wisdom from a situation or a person or an environment or what's happening. And so I'm like 21 years old, going to fill up my five-gallon jug like we do. Go to the store. I'm sitting at the outside of the store with the big old water machine, place my five-gallon jug underneath the little nozzle, press the button, it starts filling up. And it's taking a while. Like I've done this before, but this seems extra long. I didn't bring my phone, I'm bored. it's like, I don't know, a little above halfway. And I'm about to just grab that jug and leave. Now I don't even care, like we'll just, we'll just drink half a jug for the next week. Um, and, and something, I guess, was made clear to me in that moment. I thought, huh, I was about to leave too early and just settle for how much I'd been that, that gallon was filled up. I was just about to leave early and settle and compromise and go, you know what, it's filled enough. It's not filled to the full, but I'll I'll just, you know, I'll deal with it. So I I was just looking at this, going, Man, some something inside of me went, I do this to God. I do this to God. Whether it's me seeking his face, whether it's me fasting, whether it's me waiting on him to do what I believe he's gonna do. I think sometimes we dip a little too early. We dip a little too early. Um, We wanna leave because we're like, this is taking too long. And we miss out on the full effect, the fulfilling of what God wanted to accomplish through that waiting period, through that test. And it doesn't mean you can't get back on track but you give up and walk away. You say, I'm done waiting. I'm just gonna go and do my own thing. I'll make it happen on my own. And God's like, ah, there was not a full effect that trial or that that waiting period had on you. There was more. There was more I had for you. If you just stayed a little longer, you would have been filled to the full and you wouldn't have to come here so periodically and get your filling. You'd have enough to sustain you over the next day. Not that we don't need to seek the Lord anymore, but..." You know god gives us what we need for each day and i wonder how much we miss out on because we're simply just impatient we're just impatient God, i'm tired of waiting i'm just done i'm done not knowing i'm done wondering and being confused and sitting here doing what you told me to do and things are getting worse i'm done i'm tired i'm exhausted and then we we give up too easily we stop seeking his face we stop praying we stop being faithful we stop getting around godly people and we just start doing our own thing. I'll make it happen myself. I'll figure this out. I'll call people that are professionals and make it happen. Since you're not doing it, God, I'll figure it out. And you know what? We get ourselves into more trouble when we miss out on the full effect that a testing period was supposed to have on us. Maybe God was going to add to you through that season of waiting, add to you exactly what you've been praying and waiting for if you just waited till the end. Or at least move you one step closer through that waiting. You never know. And we can never know for sure how much and uh, how much we miss out on. The, the point is, I just I never want to walk away too early and say that I'm not sure that testing or waiting period had the full effect it was supposed to. I never want to walk away from that. I want to sit there and know, God, I stayed faithfully. I waited on you. I did what you told me to do. I obeyed even when it was hard and I didn't walk away, even though people were telling me to like Job's wife, curse God and die. Why? If I do, he's going to be waiting for me when I die. So I can't escape him either way. And Job stays. He's not perfect, but I mean, how many people in our life, our own flesh, stop waiting, give up, go do something else, move on. And God's going, oh, just wait, just keep waiting. Just keep doing what I've told you to keep your eyes on me. Go back to John chapter 11. It says, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. There's your calculations. Yeah. two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. which um, seems to be from Jerusalem, not just from their local town of Bethany. So when Martha heard the Jew, that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. Mary stayed seated in the house. That's like Mary to just sit there, huh? Martha said to Jesus, Now you've got to understand how disappointed Martha is. You've got to understand how, how she expected Jesus to do something, and he didn't. She expected love to look a certain way, and he didn't do that. So now she's, you, you imagine what's going on and spiraling in her head and what she's thinking. You made us wait longer than we thought. He died, we thought if you loved him, you'd healed him. Maybe there's bitterness, we don't know. But I can put myself in that scenario and know, I, I probably would would have to fight off bitterness settling into my heart. I would probably have to fight off this complaining, blaming spirit where I make God the problem and accuse him. I'd probably have to fight with that. So Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She knows what could have happened. She knows what Jesus could have done, but he didn't. Isn't that the most frustrating thing ever? When you're waiting on God, knowing that he could, but he's not. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with God not doing what you know he could? or even when you want him to do it. And you know he could. There's nothing stopping you, God. You could easily do this. You could easily heal me. You could easily like fix my financial crisis and get us back on our feet. You could easily restore my marriage. You could easily reveal yourself to my husband. You could easily do these things when I want, how I want, and you're not. And you're not. And she goes, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Is that true? Yeah. If Jesus came, there would have been healing. Now look at this. Here's what I want you to see. The third thing about the waiting test is that the waiting test not only has a purpose, not only has a time frame, but also it reveals our faith. You're starting to see Martha's view of Jesus, her theology, her own faith, being exposed in this situation and conversation. She's exposing herself. Not as a fraud, not as a perfect individual either. Just in between, she's struggling. She's battling, she's wrestling, she's fighting. She's being honest and genuine, right? She's not faking it, but she still has faith. There's something about the waiting test that exposes the real version of who we really are. Like it it exposes where we're really at exposes where we're really at spiritually. You you can cover yourself with all the spiritual lingo and get in the right conversations and sound like the theological scholar you think you are in certain circles. Like, you put on the best face and everyone's like, what a man of God. Whoa. There's something about the pressure of life that exposes our true character. That really reveals what we really think of God and where we're really at in our faith. And she goes, even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Has her faith gone down? Does she doubt Jesus' ability now because he didn't do something she wanted? No. In fact, she still believes, I know you can. I know you didn't do it earlier. But I know that you can still do something. That's a good place to be. Instead of looking at what God didn't do and then assuming that means he can't do anything in our future, we should look at what he didn't do and go, you still can. Like, you still can. My previous disappointments don't speak louder about you than your word does to me. right? So we often like, take our disappointments and our expectations being let down and we project those onto God as if those are indicators of who he really is as if our own disappointment tells us who God truly is. If anything, your disappointments tell you who you really are and where you're really at. First Peter, it says, in this you rejoice even for a little while, because guess what? Every period of testing, every period of waiting, every season of trial will come to an end. I mean, frankly, we're looking at the timeline of human history, compared to eternity, this life, and any amount of hardship and pain and turmoil, I'm not not belittling it, not making it small, I'm saying compared to eternity, like what Paul says, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's coming. It's a little while. But in this you rejoice, even for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, Put your hands up if you have recently been grieved by various trials. Here's why. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which by the way, perishes, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. In other words, like I've been saying, every test, every waiting period, Every opportunity for the pressure to kind of close in on me is not only a test of my faith, but it's purposed to glorify and praise the name of God in our life through what he does and through how faithful we end up being to him. I just spit everywhere. And so the genuineness of our faith has to be revealed and exposed in seasons. Throughout your life, you need to have Uh, moments where you're honest about where you're at. And sometimes we're self-deceived. Sometimes we have an inflated view of where we're really at, an arrogant view, or we have a, a lower view of where we're at than we actually are. And so what God does is he allows trials to prove the genuineness of our faith so that we stay humble, but also remain confident that he really has done a work in me. Look at that. Look at, what he's, look at how he helped me remain faithful to him. Look at how this, the faith he's, he's, he's given me has actually proved, uh, been proven through this test. Look at it. And he's glorified through that. Waiting on God is not just believing for God to do things. Right? Waiting on God is not just having faith to receive things. Waiting on God is having faith to endure things. A lot of you have the faith to believe God will do stuff. You have the faith God can heal me. God can reverse our financial situation. God can restore our marriage. God can bring my kids back to him. God can do a work in this situation and make glory for his name. God can. You're like, God can, he can change my life. He can give me these things. What you lack though and what I lack is the faith to endure things. I have way more faith to believe God can do things for me than I do to actually endure the things I don't want him to allow in my life. And so waiting on God is not just, con- is not just continuing to say he can, he will, like, like Martha, but it's also having this, this zeal and this unstoppable fervor that says, whatever the enemy and the world and my own flesh is throwing at me, I'm enduring that to the other side because I'm so sure that he can. Because I'm so sure of who he is. Waiting on God is more about who he is. It's less about what he does. It's less about what he gives. It's more about who is my God? Who has he been throughout time? Before time even started ticking and once eternity takes over this world. What, who has he been in eternity past into eternity future? Who is he? And the waiting process, and the waiting test, is necessary to show us where we really are. Otherwise people get prideful, or they get discouraged and condemned, and they walk in shame. And so what God does is he allows the trial to show us where we really are. So that we realize we have a lot more progress to make to get to Christ in terms of sanctification, but also look back to where you came. Look at how you handled this trial years ago. Same thing, right? Different time. Look at how you handle it now. Wow, look at what God's done. And the trials expose the impurities of our heart. There are many ungodly things in our heart. There are many ungodly things in our flesh, in our character, in our life that we don't realize are there. You know, the psalmist will pray, God, would you Reveal, show me the things I don't see. Reveal the things I don't see. Search my heart, O oh God. It's an invitation for God to expose things he doesn't even know we're there, but he's wise enough to know that there's something there he might not see. And he's saying, God reveal, God expose. It's to my benefit that I know what's there so I can address it and not continue carrying that baggage around. And what God does is he fits you through a smaller door than you used to fit in called a trial. And as you walk through that, you can't bring the baggage with you. And through the trial, as you're squeezing through that small space, it's smaller than the last trial. Through that, he's squeezing off the things that don't belong, the things that can't fit in. If you're going to really walk in the next season of your life and enjoy what he's bringing you, there are things that have to be removed. And by fitting you through the small door called a trial, he's taking those things off. Because look, God uses trials and tests to reveal what we can't continue hanging on to. Because you're praying for something you can't handle if you continue holding on to the baggage you have. So God's going to address that. There are character flaws you can't continue uh, allowing to hang around if you're going to move into the next season of your life and what God has for you. Those things have to shift. Those things have to change. And so what God does is he allows the trials to expose that. So not only you can address it, but by the grace of God, he can address it because of what he has in mind for you. There's more for his people. The problem is, there are things we're holding on to, and I don't have room to hold on to the more he has. So I gotta let go of those. There are character flaws. There are things in my heart and my my life that I gotta let go of. So, you know, think about when you're driving on the highway and there's specific mile markers. You know, about a year and a couple months ago, my family and I, we drove from California all the way to Florida. We crossed the whole entire nation to park it here in Florida. And along the way, you see these mile markers, mile 238, mile 400, okay? And those mile markers indicate where you are, not just in proximity to your goal, but those mile markers show you how far you've come from where you started. This is how trials function in our faith. There are periodical mile markers in your life to show you what you need to work on how far you are in your sanctification process from being perfect, but also how far you've come. So it's the appropriate amount of confidence and humility. So Martha goes, even now I know, God will give you whatever you ask. Wow. So she hasn't been robbed of her confidence because she was disappointed. How many of us allow disappointments and let down expectations to rob us of confidence in God? And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Whoa. That's the most reassuring, comforting statement ever. The problem is Martha's going to go, I, I, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection, you know, on the last day. That's not what Jesus is mainly talking about. That is Ultimate. That is the best resurrection, but he's also talking about, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. He's correcting uh, maybe some some theology, maybe some eschatology that has been uh, somewhat maybe disrupted by her disappointments possibly, but the point is she she's thinking I know he'll rise again in the last day and Jesus is going, Whoop You you skipped right for the resurrection and didn't even consider that I might be speaking of now. That wasn't on Martha's radar. That wasn't on her mind. Because he goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, he'll live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? So he uses this disappointment, he uses this opportunity to speak a deeper uh, understanding of who he is into Martha, to reveal a deeper truth. that, that You don't understand, like, it's not just about the last day. It's not just about being resurrected. It's about me. I'm the one who gives life that no one can take. That's what Jesus is saying. If you believe in me, you'll never die. So even though Lazarus has died, if you believe in me, if he believed in me, he'll never die. And you're like, but he died physically. Physically. Not once for all. Death doesn't have the final say. But Jesus is going to prove this by overturning death physically for Lazarus. And she said, yes, Lord, I do believe. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the son of God who is coming into the world. Wow. I love that Jesus uses this opportunity to reassure Martha of what she already knows and build on that and make it even more clear and ground that even deeper. The fourth thing you're gonna see is that the waiting test actually attracts opposition. Now I'm gonna read down to verse 32 and then we'll back it up and I'll show you what I mean. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary. And she said in private, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and, and went to him. She's excited, she thinks something's about to happen. If anyone has the faith to believe Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, it's Mary. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. He was still in the place where Martha met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. Supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, watch what she says. When Mary came to where Jesus was, and she saw him, okay... She fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Who else said that? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Shortest verse in the Bible. Anyone can memorize this. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Next time someone quizzes you on the Bible, and says, on the spot, give me a Bible verse. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Where's my reward? So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But, but some of them said, watch. Couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So you have Mary and Martha going, You could have prevented Lazarus from dying if you were here. You have some of the Jews going, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? What's the expectation? What's the underlying assumption? That Jesus should have kept Lazarus from dying. That's the underlying assumption. If he had the power to open the eyes of the blind, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. Not because he can't but because he was actually planning to do something better. Mary and Martha, you could have kept him from dying. I know, I know what I could have done, but I chose not to. I chose not to. This is what you need to understand about the period of waiting throughout your life, is that the waiting test attracts opposition. There is always an opportunity to choose to doubt God and be discouraged in our faith and walk away and choose to attack his character and blame him, that temptation is amplified when you're under pressure and you're waiting and you're believing and you think he let you down and you had expectations he didn't meet. And you know, we we grow discouraged because of man-made expectations. We do. God, I'm disappointed. You should have. You could have and we grow discouraged and impatient because of what we don't see God doing. Instead of focusing on what God isn't doing in your life or what he hasn't done or what he's allowed, you should be focusing on the good he has done and the good he's promised to do for you. We're always so focused on what God isn't doing And we allow that to be our focus, which that's all I think about is what God's not doing. You're going to allow that to overshadow all the good he's already done. You're going to allow this moment of of waiting and being patient and being under pressure and in the fire. This moment is going to overshadow the countless moments of faithfulness and love you've already seen. Really? Really? And we assume we know better, so God should have. The fact that he didn't proves that my expectations were off. The fact that he did not proves I did not know the best case scenario. He does. Because what happens is, you have Mary and Martha with these expectations of Jesus. You love Lazarus. You could have been here. You could have healed him. If you were, he would have have been healed. And the Jews, you could have kept this man from dying. The underlying assumption, again, is that that was the right thing to do. Says who? When did you decide to know what God should and shouldn't do in your life? When did did you get the authority to tell God what is best for your life? Because what happens is, the enemy will come in, take that disappointment, and capitalize on it, and use that as an attack point on your faith. Because now you're discouraged, you're disappointed, and in every waiting period of your life, God has an intended purpose, but so does the enemy. They both have a competing agenda for you in your season of waiting, in your period of waiting and trusting in the test you're under. They both have a competing agenda. God wants to build you, the enemy wants to break you. And whichever purpose prevails depends on whether or not you trust God the whole way through. And understand this, you might have a time frame in mind. You might have a picture in your mind of what God's gonna do and how he's gonna do it and the people he's gonna use and how old you'll be when you get married. You might have a picture in mind but know this for certain, God is never late. God is never late. We're just impatient. You know the Gandalf scene? I arrived precisely when I planned. Probably butchered it. The point is, <laughs> that's, the, that, that's the idea. God is never late. We assume he is, because we expected him to be here sooner. We expected him to intervene faster. We expected him to hold himself to our time frame when God never said he would. And then the enemy wants to use that as an opportunity to accuse God to you. Because we want someone to blame when things aren't going our way. And I can't blame me or anyone, I got to blame God. He's old, he's sovereign, right? He's in charge. Let me blame God for not providing as much as he could. Let me blame God for not healing my sister. Let me bl- Let's blame God. And so the enemy wants to accuse God to us. Just like he did to Eve in Genesis 3, he goes, did God really say? God's just holding out on you. He knows you can be like him. He attacks the character and the goodness of God. Or to Job, right? God, the, the, the accuser comes to God and he goes, ah, Job only loves you and serves you because of all the stuff you do. And then Job is tempted to give in to that same kind of idea, right? His, his wife goes, curse God and die. Woman, mm-hmm. What about Jesus in the wilderness? Matthew 4. If you're really the son of God. Three times. If you're truly the son of God. The underlying idea within that is if if God is really your father, cared for you, wouldn't you be, why are you hungry? Why are you out here in the wilderness starving? Why are you out here wasting away? Why do you have to like lay your life down to get the nations to bring salvation? There's all these accusations. And the enemy will use your waiting period as, or your trials, and he'll, he'll look at that and say, Look, the fact that you're under pressure and in the fire, that's a reason not to trust God. That's why God's not reliable. He's not for you, and he'll start lying to you. And you are vulnerable to those lies when you're in a place of discouragement, in a place of having your expectations let down, because that's just the human condition. Unless you choose to focus on who God has said he is in his word and you cling to the promises of God so that the enemy can't get a foothold into your faith, because that's what we need to do. Don't let the enemy or your own flesh or the world convince you that God is not who he says he is. And sometimes we allow the pressure around us to speak louder than the word of God does. And we choose to give more of our attention to what's going on around us and the pressure and the fire and the discouragement and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we let that speak to us ideas about God instead of the word of God, instead of the faithfulness we've seen throughout our life. Sometimes we choose to see God through the filter of what he hasn't done. And we only see God for what he isn't doing in our life. Rather than looking at God through the lens of his word. It's like the longer we're under pressure, or the longer we're in a trial, it's easier to believe lies about God. And you start to wonder, like, I know this... Romans 8 says he works all things together for our good. It's, I'm actually starting to doubt that because I've been under the fire for so long and I've been waiting for so long, right? And you start to go, I know I read it. I even taught this passage. I even preached this. I have a tattooed on, on my back and I'm just really not sure it's what I thought it was. I don't really think God, and you start to question. The last thing is this. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Weird, weird suggestion. He's been dead for four days. Martha, the sister of the dead man, I love it's not Lazarus, it's the dead man. Just to clarify and really make it clear what Jesus is about to do, he's a dead man. (laughs) Martha said, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Now, she's either using this as a cover for her own doubt, and what she really means is, you can't do anything about this. He's gone. It's been four days. right? Culturally, in, 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 in Jewish theology, as far as I've, been, I, I've studied, once you're past that three-day marker, your good is gone. Death has taken you once and for all. There's no chance for you to come back. And so he's gone. Is this a cover for Martha's Doubt? Or is it really, Is she really concerned with smell? I, it would smell terrible. I don't know if you've been around rotting flesh, but especially after four days, that's disgusting. That That will make a group of people puke. A chain effect of puking will take place. And that will not be good. But the point is, either way, she's kind of pushing back, isn't she? Move the stone. Ah, it's going to smell bad. That's the concern right now. Jesus said, did I not tell you if you believed you'd see the glory of God? It is going to smell, by the way, I'm sure. That initial smell has to rock the crowd. (laughs) It's, woof? is this really a good idea, Jesus? I'm about to pass out. Didn't I tell you you'd see the glory of God? Hmm. He told the disciples that. He told Martha that. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of or for the people standing around, that they may believe you sent me. What did he tell the disciples in the very beginning? Tells Martha, do you believe that I'm the resurrection? Right? Tells the disciples, for your sake, I'm glad I didn't heal Lazarus and let him die, actually, so that you may believe. This is all purposed for faith. Do you see it? I really hope... God is more concerned about your faith than he is about your temporary convenience and comfort in this life. It doesn't mean comfort is irrelevant. It means what you and I picture as comfort is not always biblical comfort. The kind of comfort God brings is a strengthening of the faith, is a reassurance, is a revelation of his love and his presence. It's a nearness. It's an assurance that things are going to work out. The kind of comfort you and I think is, nothing's ever wrong. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. He, like if this is a loud voice, he's screaming, Lazarus, come out boy. The man who died came out. How long did it take? How, what was the suspense? How long were they sitting there in suspense going, is anything gonna happen? Was it immediate? Like the minute he says, come out Lazarus, oh, the man who died came out. His hands, his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, he was dead. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, the last thing you need to understand, and this is possibly the biggest point of this whole message, is that the waiting test works for our good. The waiting test works for our good. Mary and Martha waited many days, longer than they wanted. Jesus didn't do what they thought he would do. They were disappointed. It was for their good. It was for Lazarus' good. It was for the disciples' good and the crowd's good. You and I are very individualistic and and, and frankly selfish at times where we look at how long we're waiting and all we're thinking of is how this affects me and how long do I have to wait and how are you going to impact my faith? How are you going to benefit me? And God's going, it ain't about you, but you're going to benefit in the process along with a lot of other people because you're going to have a story and a testimony to share and encourage faith. People are going to see the changed person you are. There's a lot down the line generations and your children will be impacted by what I'm doing in your life. It's not just about me, but the waiting does work for our good. In other words, the waiting period God brings us through, it really does work. It produces the best results. God is working in your waiting. He is. And you know, I don't need to see evidence of progress to know God is working. That's a word for some of you. Did Mary and Martha see any evidence of progress in Lazarus and his flesh kind of unrotting or or his his body starting to move was there any evidence of progress apart from Jesus coming and saying show me where he is why oh he wants to pay his respects and no he's going to go and raise him up from the dead you and I don't always see evidence of progress and frankly we don't need to i know he's working even when there's no evidence of it Something's happened abruptly, right? We serve the God of the suddenly. It's not always suddenly, but sometimes it is. We're like, I've been sitting here for so long. Suddenly, everything changed. Suddenly, everything changed. It happens abruptly. No evidence leading up to it. We are like, whoa, God, you were doing this behind the scenes? Wow. This whole time, you've been building up to this. You've been working with these people, and they've been coming together, and underground, you've been doing a lot. Then it just happens suddenly. Does it always happen like that? No. Can God do that? Yeah. You're going know, I've been sitting in financial turmoil for years. It seems like poverty is a curse on our gen on, on, on my family. Right? That's what it feels like. Are we ever gonna get out of this? Are we always gonna struggle? Are we always gonna scrape the bottom to make ends meet? And suddenly something happens. You go, know, I've been waiting on you. And sometimes God does things progressively over time and he lets you see evidence of it. Where you're like, okay. I see I see progress, I can wait, let's go. But if you're only waiting because you see evidence of progress, because you see that God is working, because you see God is doing something and you're like, okay, then again, are you really waiting? Because it sounds conditional to me. When you're like, I'll seek God and I'll fast and I'll pray when I see my, my job changing, when I see a, an increase in our pay, when I see more, I don't know, Progress in my wife's health. That's when I'll I'll keep serving and faithfully. Really? Only when you see evidence that God is working in this situation, that's when you'll seek him. That's when you'll want him. That's when you'll open his word. You got to understand like the waiting process is making you stronger, making me stronger. It's giving us a clearer glimpse of who God really is. And the test of waiting makes way for something better that God actually knows we need. Mary and Martha were left waiting a number of days. Lazarus was left waiting four days in that tomb. We don't know what was happening all the while with his soul. You can only speculate. The disciples, I mean, even Jesus, waiting it out, letting things play, run their course. God is worth waiting. God is worth waiting for not because of what he'll do, but because of who he is. Do you get that? God is worth waiting for not because of what he's going to do or even what he's doing, but simply because of who he is. He's worthy of my waiting, he's worthy of my trust. And waiting on God is eager expectation of him. It's hoping in him, not in what he does, not in what he provides, not in what he's changing. Those are byproducts. Those are secondary. Waiting on God. You might think you're waiting for something and you're going, I'm waiting for God to do or give or change. But what you're really unknowingly waiting for of utmost importance is God himself. And you don't know what you're waiting is doing. I don't. I don't need to know to be faithful. I don't know what God is doing in the waiting behind the scenes underground through my waiting at the end of, I don't need to know. What I know about God is enough to get me through the uncertainty of life. What I know about him is enough to get me through what I don't know he's doing. Because Romans 8 28 tells me we know for those who love God, all things loss. Tragedy, sickness, financial turmoil, losing your job, being displaced and removed from your home, foreclosure, a child, all things in our life that God allows, brings us through. It's working together for good, not just our good, but for good in general. Good being overall uh, universal goodness for all of humanity. When God allows people to go through stuff, he doesn't just have you in mind. And that's what will help you wait a little longer. That's what will help you be faithful, is knowing this is not just about me. What you're gonna produce through this and what you're doing goes well beyond me into generations. It's gonna impact the world. And I thank you, God, that my waiting now, you're doing something through it that's gonna impact people beyond my life. We know God works all things for good. And remember, the good, if you go on to Romans eight twenty nine, is what makes us most like Jesus. That's the purpose for our calling. God called us to be like his son. God called us to be sanctified and set apart and live different and progress into the image of Jesus as we walk with him. That's what God calls us. So whatever good he's working out, I know it's gonna make me more like his son. I know it's gonna glorify his name. I know it's going to benefit my life and my faith. I know it's going to reveal a dimension of God that I didn't previously see. And now I'm going to see God from a different angle that I didn't even know existed. Because when we grow comfortable, when we settle into life, when we go through seasons of adversity and there's nothing going wrong and everything's nice, God has more for us. Always. More of Him deeper intimacy, deeper love, more humility, more Christ-likeness, and so what God does is he will actually provoke us to ask for more through the waiting process. The pressure causes us to ask for the more that we didn't even uh, want in our season of comfort, because that's what happens. Israel settles into this kind of, ah, we're relaxed, got fruit on the trees, didn't even work these fields, just kind of kicked the nations out and we have all these houses. We just, ah, we made it, we made it. And they forget their need for God, right? And that puts them in a more dangerous position. John 15 tells us that if you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. He says, abide in me, and I in you, the branch can't bear fruit by itself, right? A disconnected branch cannot, will not, it's impossible for it to bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, unless it's connected to Jesus who is the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, the flip side is also true. Not only is fruit impossible for a disconnected branch, but fruit is guaranteed for a connected branch. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. Now, abiding is staying, remaining, continuing to believe mainly. And that involves investing into our relationship with God, but it's mainly continuing to believe. Now, whoever abides, he it is. That person bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We forget that. And that's why periodical seasons of testing... And pressure and trials are necessary to keep us in a place of, I can do nothing without you. And I humbly rely on you for life, for breath, for salvation, for righteousness, for everything good that I have to even exist, I rely on you. We don't need to know everything that God is doing behind the scenes. We obsess over knowing all that he's doing. We obsess over knowing, but how's he gonna work this out? And what's he doing about my character? What's he doing about my faith? How's he handling my finances? What's he gonna do with my relationship with my children? What's he doing? You don't need to know what he's doing through your faithful waiting. You can obsess over all the things you don't know, or you can focus on the things you do know about him. So your waiting is not based on the good that's coming it's based on the God who's working out that good. Does that make sense? You and I think, oh, our waiting on God is based on the good that's gonna come through this. No, my waiting on God has nothing to do with the results. Even if nothing happened, hypothetically, which we know biblically isn't true, but let's like create an unbiblical hypothetical where even if my waiting produced no results, no fruit, did nothing good, he's still worth waiting on because it's not about what he's doing or what he's giving. It's about who he is. And the, the good thing about our God is his process of waiting and the way he produces fruit in our life. His process has a 100% success rate. Good fruit is guaranteed him working out good in your life through everything guaranteed for those who love him and are called. So even if you don't see the results, even if you don't see evidence of progress, even if you don't see anything happening through your waiting, keep showing up. Keep being faithful. Keep serving your local church. Keep seeking His face. Keep opening your Bible. Even if you don't think anything's being retained and you forget it the next day and I don't see any change in my life, keep showing up and doing what He's told you to do. Because God is planting seeds in your heart and he's going to bear fruit with that seed and you being faithful in the waiting and staying at his feet. God is going to work through that and the results will be evident eventually. It's not always clear what God is doing underneath the surface, but trust him that he's doing something. Because again, James chapter one, if you stop waiting and you give up, and you walk away and you give in to that discouragement and you just put the whole faith in God on halt and pause. You stop waiting too early, you miss out on the fullness of what God wanted to do in your waiting period and through your waiting period. There's a lot more God has for us. There's a lot more that God has for us. The problem is we don't know how to wait long enough actually see it happen we don't so when it comes to waiting on god and the test of waiting number one the waiting test has a purpose every time ultimately it glorifies god and works out for good number two the waiting test always has a time frame it won't last forever it will end number three the waiting test reveals our faith it is for your good Number four, the waiting test attracts opposition. Number five, the waiting test works for our good. Go ahead and visit abovereproachministry.com if you have not already. Check out all our free resources, um, our free Bible study courses, our free Bible study worksheets, our free Bible study devotionals, our free online church. It's awesome. We have church through the Discord app. It's a blessing. Come join. Um, you can get a copy of my book, Fruitful. You can get some church merch and represent Jesus on your body. And all of the proceeds that come through that fund this ministry and make all these free resources possible to everyone around the planet. So thank you for those, for those of you that support and make this possible. And help us, you help us be a resource to the church and reach the lost and equip the saints. And if you'd like to give to this ministry, you can give like going to aboveapproachministry.com slash donate. Or you can just click the donate button. You can give uh, and mail a check to P.O. Box 338, Green Cove Springs, Florida. You can donate through your debit or credit card or your bank account. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, or you can be a monthly supporter through Patreon. And when you support us through Patreon, you get exclusive access to a bunch of content and benefits like my sermon notes, uh, discounts on merch, um, trying to think what else. But depending on the tier you sign up with, you get a free copy of my book, either digitally or physically. And so there's lots of perks there. And then you can also get some church merch. And that allows you to represent Jesus on your body. Shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, digital products, all that kind of stuff. And all we're trying to do is resource people, build the church and reach the lost. And our goal is just to move people towards Jesus. And we can't do that without the grace of God. He makes the results happen, he does. And so thank you guys for joining and for watching. Uh, by the way, I don't—I forget to announce this, but on February 14th, this coming Tuesday, uh, we're officially launching our Above Approach Church podcast. And its I'm, I'm excited about it because there's gonna be exclusive content on that podcast that is mainly about church life, how to function as the local church, how to function in our local church communities, how to function as the global church, what we need to know that's going on in the church, conversations that need to be had in your home as as believers. Um, We're going through all that stuff. And so, you know, you're going to see that in one of the episodes, we released two episodes this Tuesday. We're going to launch it. I'll release the link and you'll have access to that 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time um, this Tuesday. One of the things we're going to talk about is what's happening. All the controversy around uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, if you haven't already heard. There's a lot of... Clips being made and videos and lots of stuff people are saying about him. So I just wanted to honestly address what he says, what he's doing. How should we think about it? What should we, what should we do as the local church? So come and join us for some um, local church conversations. Um, it's going to benefit you a lot. I really know that. So I, I believe this is what God is directing us to do. And it's going to be awesome. So I think that's it. I think that's it. You guys keep moving towards Jesus. And I'll see you guys later.